This week on the ACO podcast, it's all about finding new hybrids. I'm Joseph Nazetti. On the eve of Richard Tornetti's 30th anniversary season as artistic director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, we look back on his early experiences as a musician in Australia and Europe, his radical early transformation of the orchestra's look and sound, and his decision to transform the ACO into a hybrid orchestra, which specialises in not just early music and classical repertoire, but contemporary music also. Richard and I spoke about some exciting highlights of the 2020 season, celebrating 250 years since the birth of Beethoven, a new imagining of Vivaldi's Four Seasons combined with electronic music by Anna Meredith, and opportunities for collaboration with academia that are inspiring Richard's thinking around future programming with the orchestra. So it's lovely to have you on the podcast after all this time. So I've interviewed all these other people. I know you've become a podcast expert, Joseph. <laughs> You're an inspiration. And I think I need to uh, articulate a disclosure, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that Joseph and I have been working together in partnership for many years on various projects. And Joseph started off as an assistant and then became a producer and most recently worked on mountain. So it is good having you on this side of the microphone, Joseph. Oh, thank you very much, Richard. To sort of set the stage for this bigger conversation about 30 years artistic director with ACO, there'll be quite a lot of people who hear this who don't know your full story and how you got into music. I was wondering if you could take us right back to the, uh, right. the very, very beginning. Do you sort of remember your earliest musical experiences? Well, I, I was fortunate. I grew up in Wollongong. As I never tire of informing people. Wollongong, it even sounds strange. It was a strange place to grow up. There was a violinist called Harold Brissenden and his wife, pianist Nada Brissenden, who came back from a Churchill Fellowship armed with the extraordinary instructing technique called Suzuki. So I was one of the first Suzuki students, I suppose, in Australia. And what was great about Suzuki was the commune effect. So you were all doing it together. And you didn't have to learn to read music. Theory didn't get in the way of a good time. And in fact, I found it a bit hard to get into theory as a result of it as one drawback. I was jealous when I went to the conservatory in high school because other kids could read music. I suppose like a pop musician, you know, sort of, wow, how do you read music? You know, some kids could even sight read, you know. Um, of course, that came later and necessarily so, of course, if you're going to be a so-called classical musician. But that's, that's what got me into it. And, and it was the sense of the community. I enjoyed playing with other kids or thinking I was playing, you know, in the Suzuki method. Sometimes you end up with tens of other kids playing and you think you're making maybe a better sound than you are. But there's a certain beauty to that when you're a kid and you are scratching away on a violin. Other kids fell away. I ended up being one of the few kids remaining and continuing with it. And then, of course, you know, life gets tough as a child playing a violin in in places where it's not really accepted as the norm. I had this extraordinary fortune of being in Wollongong in the years 1977 through to, I think, 80, where I found William Primrose. One of the greatest string players of all time, who had accompanied his wife, the Suzuki teacher, Hiroko Sawa, to Wollongong. And so I had regular lessons with this great, extraordinary man. I was too young in many respects, but the brain filters in a different way when you're a kid. And so somehow I did imbibe his spirit into my musical DNA. Then I went to the Conservatorium High School 
I had one consistent teacher. She was extraordinary. Came from the Russian violin school. There was no soft parenting there. Real hardcore, proper Russian violin school, which was fantastic. When I graduated from the Sydney Conservatorium, I ended up going to Bern in Switzerland and thoroughly loving it and studying with the Slovenian violinist Igor Ozim. I wasn't aware that he came from the town of Maribor. And it was only once I took over the Maribor Festival that I realised that it was this fantastic confluence and that I um, ended up directing a festival in the hometown of my violin teacher, Igor Ozum. Hmm. Whilst I was finishing up in Switzerland that I got a call from the then general manager of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, it had a few problems, let's be honest about it, uh, if, if I'd come and have a bit of a go. I never entertained the notion that I would end up back in Australia. I was like majority of students back then, one-way ticket to Europe because I had no intention of returning. Mm. And so I got this call and I'm still here. Was there anything particularly about your time over there that shifted your tastes or your interests? Well, I knew that I had to invest like every string player. Violinists, you know, we just have to invest this time at some point, three to five years of really, you know, putting yourself in the gulag. Yeah. Is this the so-called 10,000 hours as far as it applies to string playing? And really, you know, raw to the bone kind of practice. Mm. You can't take the easy route if you're going to be a violinist. Mm. And so it it was in Switzerland that that I did. I was most fortunate that I ended up in a terrific environment, really good friends surrounded by energizing musicians and also I had a job in a little um, orchestra there that was very well known actually at the time, Camerata Bern, and we traveled through Europe so I got to see a lot of Europe but I was really able to you know put in those hours. So as a violinist you came back with a set of tools that really did enable you to begin dreaming pretty big not just with performance opportunities but in terms of programming Mm. we've never even spoken about this day to day but the whole idea of being an artistic director were there any early inspirations for you the great conductors did you look at something like the 33 year run of Karajan? Right no (laughs) no 33 year run okay so he beat Haydn at Esterhazy. No, certainly not with the the, the big conductors. Yeah. It was this sort of rebellious attitude that came from the early music movement that actually pushed me away from looking into the great temple of those conductors, such as Herbert von Karajan. In a way, I had my I, I sort of rebelled against that rather than being inspired by. I came back with pretty strong ideas that if you play the music of Bach that you should sound quite different to playing the music of Brahms. And also running a small chamber orchestra back then was more about democracy and being a conductorless ensemble. I've mm-hmm. changed my attitude to that. Actually, my attitude changed pretty early on. The democracy in that kind of leaderless role that people envisage, oh, it just happens by magic, is not on. It just doesn't happen like that. You've got to have leadership. You're charged with the responsibility of making musical decisions. And I'm pretty opinionated when it comes to interpretation. Going back to the idea of the artistic director Mm. building a season, filling it with pieces of music, giving an audience some sort of sense of continuity or exploration, building acquaintances over time with certain types of repertoire, was that something that you fell naturally into? You know, you had something to say. 
Yeah, look, I fell naturally into it in certain respects, crafting programs that were imaginative conceits. And that's why I started the Huntington Music Festival, where I was free to do this. In the grand scheme of things, what I brought was the new hybrid. And that was quite radical at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you were a specialist back then, the idea of being a hybrid group. Now, of course, it's absolute norm. But I didn't want to deny myself the pleasures of playing Brahms just because I played Bach on gut strings and early instruments. Mm. Just to paint a bit of a picture for the audience, the peak of the historically informed performance wars, I suppose you could almost call them. Camps. (laughs) Very heated. They were very heated. On both sides, it's sort of a very Puritan. It's not only the selection of the repertoire, but very much how it's rendered. Oh, and they were brittle arguments too, and brittle arguments break, as Mm. we know. Also, what I brought was open eyes and ears to the new musicologists. But I was particularly taken by musicologists who could practice what they preach. And this is a very, very rare person to find. Mm. We're talking about somebody like John Butt, for instance, who's both an expert in Bach scholarship and a a fantastic choral conductor in his own right. Exactly. And Christopher Hogwood, I would argue. hyper-articulate and was very much against interpretation, especially the romantic notion of the ego in interpretation, one that I kind of tried to accept but now totally repudiate because you can't deny your own self. Mm. Anyway, so that's what I brought to the early days of my directorship of the ACO, the hybrid, the the fact that we played on, you know, gut strings and bows and so forth, Mm. early bows, and then slowly brought in the cross art platform. At first I was able to call it crossover, but then it became a dirty word, you know, because of the likes of Bond and exactly, you know, yeah. Vanessa May. And yeah, yeah. so cross platform and then multimedia mm-hmm. and then the projects that we've embarked on, Joseph, yeah. over the years. visible changes that took place after you came in as artistic director was the visual aspect of the orchestra with the Akira clothes among other changes perhaps most vitally standing during performances yeah. I was wondering whether you might speak to those two innovations it's very easy to be radical you don't see the Rolling Stones sitting do you I mean if you have to sit you have to sit if you're a cellist but if you can stand yeah we, we stand I formed as a kid this group called the Huntington Chamber Orchestra and we stood back then and then, funnily enough, when I went to Ben, I was amazed that the Camerata Ben stood. I didn't know of any other groups at the time that stood. We don't learn body movement when we study, and especially playing something as uncomfortable as the violin. When I taught Russell Crowe to play the violin for Master and Commander, and he did an extraordinary job, which you didn't stop playing, Russell, because you showed a lot of promise. <laughs> you know, much bigger muscles than me, you know, and... He'd have to stop after 10, 15 minutes. Ow, how do you do that? Well, it's just muscle acclimatization, isn't it? And we don't learn this when we're kids. And it should be compulsory to do yoga when, when you're studying. Yehudi Menuhin was an advocate and it should have been brought into, you know, all violin studios and piano studios throughout the world 
and it would have helped a lot. So standing, as we know, is so much better for you. It liberates your muscles mm. and you become more aerobic, of course. Mm. It's the anaerobic stultification of the sitting experience that makes a lot of physical performances boring as well, I would argue. Mm. So anyway, it was difficult to get them to stand at first, those members of the Australian Chamber of but we did. And now people wouldn't know, geez, if we had to sit. I mean, we sat during Luminous, but that's different. That's mm. for dramatic effect. Yes. <laughs> um, we would all agree it's liberating. And then the clothes, yeah, so we burnt the undertaker's tails and got rid of fancy dresses. It, can you believe it? That was regarded as radical. I never got that. I always felt uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, very uncomfortable. Having performed Beethoven's monumental Ninth Symphony in 2012 with ACO and the iconic Fifth Symphony in 2018, Richard opted in programming the first tour of 2020 to begin at the start of Beethoven's symphonic journey. Richard is quick to draw a contrast between the character of Beethoven's late string quartets, a key theme in the 2016 ACO programming, and the lighter, more communal character of Beethoven's earlier symphonic writing. So this program that we're now looking at, the 2020 season, Beethoven 250. Yeah, 1770. How do you feel Beethoven fares in 2019 or in 2020 as far as a modern audience? He didn't really have his time in the shade. Obviously, unlike, unlike Bach, Bach, of course. Yeah, who needed well, and even revival. Mozart. You know. Late Beethoven did languish for 100 years. Yeah, but I don't think late Beethoven will ever have his time in the, <laughs> in, in the sun, so to speak. Look, this is just me. I don't think he ever envisaged that they were for public consumption. In fact, a, a lot of the string quartets were connoisseur works. Certainly, you know, the one that sits right in the middle, Opus 95, nicknamed Il Serioso, that was meant to be just for the connoisseur. But when you study the symphonies, you realise that it is for public consumption, not just to listen to, but to perform. That he wanted it to be performed by semi-amateurs, or should I say semi-professionals. He was enabling people to play with the symphonies because they are all, for the most part, sight reading. Yeah, and they're very gestural, very, very gestural. vertical so much yeah. of the time. And they're all so clearly written as well. And I should say to the non-musician that we're not left with much instruction. In Baroque musical, there's nothing. That's why there's so much room for warring factions of interpreters. Classical music, you start getting a few more instructions. But even in Beethoven, some, there's still a lot of conjecture, the difference between a forte piano, for example, and a sforzando, and, you know, the kinds of articulation to bring to bear on the music and so forth. Everyone else is doing, you know, number nine, number nine, number nine. Um, so we thought we'd start at the beginning, and I've not done two before, so yeah. I come as a listener to that mm. symphony. He began where Haydn left off, I would argue, not Mozart. He's not writing Mozart 42. I think he's writing Haydn 105. Continuing on with Haydn's jauntiness, humour, wit, various levels of wit, and also 
don't they say brevity is the essence of humor? Mm. Succinct. And if I had to pick a favorite, Beethoven symphony would be number one, oh. funnily enough. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then number three oh, is it's a colo- it's juggernaut, colossal, you know, massive. Uh, first movement is longer than any previously written entire symphony, and it's experimental, and it's deeply political, and then the romantic movement is born. Mm. And the me, 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 I, 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 he doesn't write in praise of God on it. It's more in praise of himself being the mensch, the person, the human being. The subjective experience. The subjective experience, exactly. Then moving to the fifth tour of the year, the Four Seasons and Beyond. I was wondering if you could speak to the Samuel Adams Commission, maybe how that came about and how it sits in this bigger journey. We met on the fertile ground in the purple haze of Berkeley when we were playing at the university there. And so we commissioned Sam to write this piece for us. He's been recently the composer-in-residence at Mm -hmm. the Chicago Symphony. And when you listen to Sam's music, it draws from all sorts of things. Sometimes Mm. it's maximalist and sometimes it's minimalist. Mm. Sometimes it does sound redolent of his father, how could he not be? And sometimes it sounds as rich and textured as Tom Addis. Mm. And he's a plugged-in guy. I wanted him to write me a piece for a plugged-in violin Mm. because he was there at the American premiere of Brett's piece when I played it uh, at Berkeley. Oh, right. A lot of people have electric violins. As you know, when we work, Mm. you know, on our projects, I'll often pull it out for Mm. a particular sound. Mm. And as you know, Joseph, it's a wild beast and it's about harnessing those sounds and it's really hard to unleash them in an acoustic context. Yeah, the almost profound thing about electric violins is that they can compete in that electronic domain Mm. because you essentially plug them or can plug them straight into a desk. Suddenly a single violin can compete with a drum machine Absolutely. or a synthesizer or Correct. a distorted guitar. And you see, this is the thing. I don't want it to sound like a violin. I've got a beautiful violin. Mm. I want it to sound otherworldly, other instrumentally. Mm. <laughs> but it's still a bow and strings, um, so it'll be really interesting to see what he comes up with. This. Rounding out the program after the newly commissioned Samuel Adams Electric Violin Concerto is electronic composer Anna Meredith's Anno. Her interpretation of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. It's the interstitial works that have pulled me back to tread the boards once again with Four Seasons, with another reworking, not of the Four Seasons, but of what goes between the Four Seasons, which is different to, say, Max Richter's reworking of the Four Seasons. She's an interesting composer, Anna Meredith, you know, because it's still a lot of uncharted territory. You know, you, you're really jumping out of the out of the plane with making your parachute as, as you're falling. Mm. You know, and no electronic instruments have entered the orchestra Besides outside of the on The on right? the beloved yeah, Ond. It's good to be there at the coalface of experimentalism, and this is where it is. But with her, it seems like a natural language to experiment with the mixture of electronica, and, mm. which is exactly what I, you know, as you know, what what we do. How will the Four Seasons sound with this interstitial electronica? Mm. 
I'll come and hear it. I'm feeling pretty emboldened, I have to say, after our Indies and Idols program, where we had pretty radical music. You know, that Penderecki string quartet, Johnny Greenwood's music, Bryce Destner's music. There were no soft edges, except, funnily enough, the Baroque-style piece of Penderecki's. But gosh, how shocking does that sound in context? And with Luminous, you know, people seem to trust us at the moment mm. for weird and wacky things. There's so much yeah. coming in all the time and all of us every day now are curators of, of our yeah. of our lives through social media, through playlisting, well, through it is the word, subscription isn't it? services. Because there's so much choice, it's yeah. almost getting rid of junk. Your, your purview as an artistic director, no. does that come into collision no, with the idea I feel, of so much choice? Look, um, I remember when I first came up with a, a CD idea for a big label mm. and I had a mixture of different composers and they said, no, we only do one composer's CDs. Mm. Ha! Yeah. Look at that now, in now. the modern world. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So that's what you mean, I, I assume, by curating. What is really getting me excited is our collaboration with Melbourne University, who I hasten to add, you know, has strong interest in Australian National Academy of Music, ANA. Um, they are intertwined. The Melbourne University has facilitated this great collaboration with the Australian Chamber Orchestra so that we can access social humanities department, maths department, physics department. So there are these wicked ideas that I have that have been prototyped in Maribor, Slovenia, to bring them to life is really what, you know, excites me. But just to continue playing my exquisite violin, to play with my colleagues, to keep the institution always feeling dangerous, but to keep on playing the music of the canon that keeps us the top of our game and making movies bespoke movies. Mm. Interesting with Melbourne University, the idea of feeding the furnace of music with the world of ideas from inside and outside music. Bill Henson keeps on quoting Robert Hughes who said, you know, meaning comes from feeling. If you start always from an intellectual perspective, sometimes the, the meaning doesn't liberate the feeling. Mm. We're sentient beings, you know. So we're always trying to express something but if you get too caught up with intellectualizing something like you can with music, you forget that it is about feeling and transmitting feeling, working with social humanists, philosophers, mathematicians and physicists. I think you can find a certain liberation in that they bring to the table the idea of synesthesia. And that is really exciting. The ACO's 2020 season is now on sale for full season subscriptions and renewals. With Flexi subscriptions available from the 10th of October and single tickets on sale from the 31st of October. For further information, visit aco.com.au. Till next time, this has been the ACO Podcast. Fantastic. I think it's a good place to end. Thank you very much. And no, thank you, Joseph. And keep the podcast going. (laughs) You sound like a pro. (laughs) Thanks, Joseph.